Let me invite you um, to grab uh, your Bible, and you can open up to Acts 7. Um, we're, we're taking a little bit of a, a, an audible uh, today. Um, so if you look in your bulletin, you'll see um, we're, we're supposed to be in 1 Corinthians 4, and it's supposed to be Pastor Bill, but I'm not Pastor Bill, and we're going to be in Acts 7 uh, this morning. Uh, so just some, some last-minute changes, and, and that's in, in light of uh, some of the other uh, the, the COVID stuff uh, that's been happening this week among us. Um, but uh, so Pastor Bill thought it wisest for him not to come. And so um, instead of continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians today, we will uh, just jump over to Acts for the week and uh, be back to 1 Corinthians um, this upcoming uh, Lord's Day. Um, and if you if you have a Bible, obviously you can turn there uh, to, to Acts in that. If you don't, there are a couple um, up on the shelf back here by the sound booth if you need one. Um, but um, before we, we read this uh, and get into this, um, I just want to give a little bit of kind of where are we in the book of Acts, because we're just kind of jumping right here in the middle of a book, uh, the middle of a story, and so I want to give a little bit of context of, of where we're at here. Um, really, the, the book of Acts, uh, you can think of it, it's the story of, of the early church. It covers about the first 30 years of the church after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Um, and Luke tells us at the beginning of Acts that uh, really this is what Jesus is continuing to do. This is, it's, it's not that Jesus left the stage. He, he ascended, but he's continuing to work uh, as he poured out his spirit in Acts 2. And then as he's working through his body and through his apostles, it's, it's continuing to be Jesus's work. Um, and so if you've been uh, following along in our, our weekly podcast, uh, we've been going through Acts and we're not quite to, to this point where we'll be today. Um, but you know that that may help you if you've if you've been tracking with that just to think on what we've been talking about there. Um, but one of the ways you can you can think of Acts also is um, it's the story of different challenges that uh, the church faces, how they respond to that, and how the Lord continues to multiply and grow His body and multiply His word through that. They face challenge after challenge after challenge. But God continues to prevail. His word continues to go forth. His, his body continues to grow. Um, and so kind of in the chapters leading up to where we'll be uh, today, uh, they, they face some, some opposition uh, from some of the Jewish leaders um, as, as really the, the apostles and others are preaching that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for. They're, they're encountering external opposition. Um, and so they, they, they face that. God continues to grow them and bless them. Uh, also in chapter 5, uh, you can think of Ananias and Sapphira who um, sell some land but then lie about um, how much they, they sold it for. And so um, they're, they're lying to the apostles, they're lying to the church, but they're ultimately lying to the Holy Spirit in that. And one of the things we see in Acts 5 is that there's a, it's not an external challenge there. That's an internal, in-the-body challenge of what is sin within the body and, 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 and how does God deal with sin and, and just what sin can cause within the body. Um, Acts 6, uh, the beginning of Acts 6, there is uh, really the challenge of as you have um, you know, Jewish Christians and Greek Christians joining together into one body, uh, there are some of the, the Greek widows who are being overlooked in the distribution of, um, of the goods. And so um, there's that challenge within the body, but God provides. Uh, the, the, the church continues to overcome these um, challenges as they stick to the word and as God continues to work. So today we'll, we'll kind of see, see another one of those um, challenges that the church 
faces, and that's um, in in Stephen's martyrdom and the persecution that that follows that. But um, with that, would you stand and uh, we'll read um, we'll read God's word and uh, hear what He has to say to us. So we're going to read Acts seven fifty four all the way to eight verse four. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, that is Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and in entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask that you um, give us uh, insight according to your spirit as we um, hear your word. Father, we ask that you give us faith to believe and to respond rightly uh, to the word that you've given us here. Uh, Lord, would you um, bless uh, me in the preaching of your word, that it would honor you and equip your people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So I want you to think, what, what role does suffering or difficulty play in the life of the church? Well, what role does, does suffering or even persecution, if you know, to go kind of that realm, or, or even just challenges and daily difficulties, kind of the normal day-to-day type stuff, what role do difficulties play in the success and the growth of the church? So we can think about that on a communal level or even a global level. You can also think about it personally. As you think about your own life, your own faith, your own journey with the Lord, what role do difficulties play in your own faith? As I've talked with many others, and even as I think about my own life, I think for many of us, if you kind of think of, man, what are the times where I have seen the Lord give me the most growth or where I've just seen a new side of him and it's in a new way and I've, I've understand something differently, or he's just changed my heart in a new way. Some of the, some of the things we point to are some of the, the highlights of your life where something really good has happened and, you, you, and, and the Lord showed up and the Lord was active and you see him in that. But I think we'd also, many of us at least, would point to some of the more difficult and trying parts of life. We're in those difficulties God has been there present doing something within us in some ways that he couldn't do in the good times. <laughs> There's something different about challenges and difficulties, right? I want to read a couple of verses that, that highlight this. We were in 1 Peter not long ago as a church, so this may be familiar, but 1 Peter 1.6, Peter says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the tested genuineness of your faith. Similarly, James chapter 1, verse 2 and four, through 2 to 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's something about trial, about difficulty, that God uses in a way that other things just don't seem to get the job done. Right? There's, there's something purifying, testing, shaping in difficulty. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter goes on to say, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. He, he equates suffering for the kingdom, suffering for following God, suffering for doing what God wants with blessing. Suffering and blessing go together. And so I, th- I think this is something that, that we would all pretty readily acknowledge, especially as we think about our own lives and right difficulties do bring about character and, and change and, and, and whatnot. Um, but to call suffering for righteousness, righteousness sake blessing is sometimes a difficult thing to do. Um, but, but what we'll see in this text, uh, again, we'll see Stephen's martyrdom, his death, and then a persecution that, that is sparked against the entire church. But these two really extreme difficulties, right? Death and persecution are used by the Lord for his purposes, they're used to do something that he wants to do, even though it's something even beyond uncomfortable. So with that, we'll, we'll get into the text here. And um, since there's not a printed outline in your bulls, well, there is, but it's the wrong one. Um, the, the, the first point, it, we're really going to look at verses 54 to 57. And uh, you could just write, why the fuss? If, if you want to write something. Um, so why the fuss? What's, what is going on here? Well, our, our text begins just in the middle of a scene, and that's just kind of the nature of it this morning. But now when, when they, the Jewish leaders, heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen. So we, we just enter this scene and it's, it's hot. They are against each other. The Jewish leaders are not excited about what Stephen is saying, and they are, are enraged at him. So, so what's the big deal? Well, uh, let's get a little bit of context. So if you go back to chapter 6, uh, Stephen is one of the men appointed at the beginning of chapter 6. And then uh, he, he's, he's preaching. And in verse 13, if you look there, chapter 6, verse 13, and they, the, the Jewish leaders, set up false witnesses who said, this man, Stephen, never ceases to speak against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Naz- Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so Stephen is accused of speaking against this place and against the law of Moses. And so this place where they're at is the holy place. It's the temple. So they are accusing Stephen that he is speaking against the temple where God dwells, and they're speaking against the law of Moses that God gave. So these are not little or light accusations. These, these are very serious accusations that they're bringing against Stephen, that he's speaking against the Lord's place and against the Lord's law. And so um, Stephen, you know, for, for the whole of chapter 7 up until our verses, um, really is, is one sermon where he preaches to them, but he's also defending against the accusations they made. 
So it's a sermon, but the context is, is that he's been accused of being against the temple and the law. And so just to, to give more context, as we think about the temple, Stephen hits that throughout this, and, and he'll um, kind of come, come to that point at each of the different junctures he touches on. Uh, but the temple um, is, is really, you, you can think of it with three connections. One is it's connected to God's presence. Uh, the temple is where God dwelt with his people. Um, another way you might think of it is it's, it's the place on earth that connects to heaven. Like God's heavenly kingdom connects down to earth at this place, and he dwells there. That's his presence with his people. The, the second connection is God's glory, and this is really connected to his presence. But where God is, his glory, majesty, beauty, that's, that's where he, the king, is. And so in the temple, you behold God's glory. And then thirdly, the temple is where sacrifice took place. It's where the priests went with sacrifices, where they mediated between God and his people so that they would be forgiven and cleansed. And so the the temple is connected again to God's presence, God's glory, and then the forgiveness of God's people because of God's mercy. And so when they say, Stephen, you're speaking against the temple, again, that's a serious thing. They're saying you're speaking against the place that represents all of these things. And so Stephen preaches this sermon. We don't have time to go into it now, but maybe you can read it later if you want. Um, but he really traces kind of all of history, and he, he touches on several different things. But one of his focuses is really that though God dwells with his people in the temple, he has dwelt with his people outside of the temple as well. He's not confined to the temple. He was with his people before we even had a temple. And so he, he touches on that throughout all of redemptive history, that God has always been with his people. And for Stephen, this comes to a head in verse 47. So verse 47, he says, But it was Solomon, King Solomon, who built a house, who built a temple for God. But the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet, and he quotes Isaiah here. So God in Isaiah says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So Stephen's climax here is, yes, we have a temple. We, like, the, the, God gave us a temple. Before that, it was the tabernacle. And God told us to do that, and he dwelt with us there. But don't be so foolish as to think that God is confined to bricks. He's not confined to this little space that these bricks enclose. No, heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. God is not simply confined to that, though he has chosen to especially make his presence known there. And then he, he takes this, and in verse 51, he really, he, <laughs> he just turns it. He was accused, remember, and he, he's defended against that. But in 51 to 53, he, he turns and he accuses those who are accusing him. He says, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised and heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He says, you guys are stubborn. You've always been stubborn, and you're stubborn like your forefathers were. Why will you not listen to God? Why will you not hear him? He says, your, your fathers persecuted the prophets. The prophets foretold about the righteous one. And now that one, the righteous one, you have betrayed and murdered. So he brings it all to a focus on Jesus that the prophets foretold about and that they have murdered. And so, of course, I mean, if, if, if they're not stubborn at this point, they might listen, but 
They, they, they're very stubborn. And you say this to, to a stubborn people, and, and that's where we get to our text with verse 54. They were enraged and they ground their teeth. And Stephen, they, they're showing their hard heart right here. They're showing that they are unwilling to listen to God's word as Stephen is preaching. And so that's their response to him. But then in verse 55 to 56, we get Stephen's response. And so the first thing we see here is that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of God's Spirit. And this is a phrase that Luke loves to use in the Gospel of Luke as well as in Acts. Uh, But Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. He's a man, but he's empowered, led by God's Spirit. You might think back to 1 Corinthians 2 that Jim preached on just a number of weeks ago. But what does he do? He, he gazes into heaven, he sees the glory of God, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen, full of the Spirit, looks up into heaven and sees Jesus in God's glory. And then he says that, verse 56, he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So that phrase, standing at the right hand of God, that's a, a position of authority to be at God's right hand. So he sees Jesus in ascended authority. Secondly, the the phrase, I see the heavens opened, is temple-like language. When the heavens open, you see God. You see his glory. You see into his heavenly temple. Again, that echoes what he said in verse uh, 55. I see the glory of God. So Stephen, after he's been preaching about the temple, is now essentially saying, I'm looking into heaven at the very temple of God, not the earthly version of it. I'm actually seeing God in his temple. I'm even seeing Jesus, the very temple himself who is the epitome of God's glory. So that's what Stephen sees. Now, it's really interesting here. A couple verses before, in verse 49 and 50, he quotes from Isaiah 66, where God makes the point. The the temple is not simply, that's not simply my temple. It it is, but like heaven is my, my throne. The earth is my foot. So the whole cosmos is my temple. But the very next verse in Isaiah 66, Stephen leaves off. He doesn't quote it. And Luke doesn't mention it either. But I want to read it here. After after God makes that point, he says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So I don't simply dwell in a house made with bricks and made with hands, but I look to him who's humble and contrite. Now, I think that's interesting because what we see here is God looking to humble Stephen who is contrite in heart and trembles at God's word. Like Stephen is actually living out the rest of Isaiah 66 in real time. While the Jewish leaders are stubborn and think that God is confined to a house, God is actually drawing near and and tearing the heavens open so that Stephen can gaze into his heavenly temple and see him where he is. And at this... In verse 57, we get the Jewish leader's response again. It says, They cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. So the first thing they do is they can't stand to hear what Stephen's saying. Like he, He's preaching the gospel that Jesus is in heaven with God, and they can't stand to hear it. And so they're just screaming, trying to drown him out, and they're plugging their ears, if just in case the screaming doesn't work. They don't want to hear it. Now, this is really ironic because Stephen has just called them uncircumcised in heart and ears, and here they're proving that point. So Paul in Romans 10 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul says, if somebody's going to believe, they've got to hear. 
They've got to hear God's word because without God's word, you can't believe, you can't hear. And now these Jewish leaders, even on a physical level, don't want to hear God's word, don't want to hear the gospel. They, 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 they want to close off their ears so they can't even physically hear, let alone that those words would penetrate their hearts. And so they rush at Stephen with violence. And, and we see here at the beginning of this story that, that really Jesus is the dividing line. It, it all hinges on who one sees Jesus as. Stephen sees Jesus as the glory of God, as the son of man who's at God's right hand, as the temple. And they disagree. They don't see that in Jesus at all. So Jesus is the dividing line. But the second point here, verse 58 to 60, we'll see really what a way to die as Stephen dies here. Um, And as we describe this, as we look at this, I want you to just think, um, I want you to try to imagine this. Like imagine being there as this is taking place. And this isn't something that we're accustomed to seeing, um, a man being drug out of a city in, in the heat of an argument and then stoned by a crowd. Like that's, that's not something that is in our normal visual framework. So I want you to just try to imagine if you were a spectator, you see this going on, like w- what's going through your mind? And so um, verse 58, they do two things. They cast him out of the city and they stone him. And I want to tell you, in some ways, they're doing the right thing. Um, And that's because Leviticus 24, and and God gives this law to his people. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Let all the congregation stone him. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. So God highly values his own name, his own honor among his people. And these Jewish leaders would look to a text like this and they'd look at Stephen and they'd say, you are blaspheming. You are saying that God, that Jesus is God. You are saying that you even see into heaven right now and you can see God's glory. So that they see Stephen as blaspheming. And so they take him out of the city to stone him. So in some ways they're right, but they're exactly wrong because Stephen is speaking the truth. Jesus is God. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the glory of God. But they're too stubborn and uncircumcised in heart to see that. So they're out. There's a crowd. They begin to stone him. Witnesses are laying down their garments at the feet of Saul, who's kind of overseeing this in some manner. And again, put yourself here, like, Put yourself there. You're, you're there. You're just a bystander, and you just see this, you know, this heated argument obviously take place. They take him out of the city. You see them put him in the middle, and then this crowd just begins to pick up actual stones and throw them at Stephen and pelt him with them. He begins to get bruised and bloodied. Like that, that is what is happening. But while that's happening, Stephen prays two prayers. You can just picture like how as you're being stoned with these, being pelted with these stones, how can you pray? So the first thing he he prays is, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's verse 59. Receive my spirit. He's, he's, again, he's, he just saw this heavenly vision of Jesus. Now he's looking to Jesus again saying, Lord Jesus, receive me. Saying, I know where I'm going. I know that I've got a welcome party there. <laughs> I know that Jesus will receive me. So Jesus, receive me because I'm leaving here right now. 
Now he's he's really echoing what Jesus prayed. Jesus in Luke 23, 46 says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathes his last. So Jesus prays very much the same thing as he dies. Now Stephen prays the same thing, only it's addressed specifically to Jesus. Both of them are alluding back to Psalm 31, verse 5, that says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. So so what do we see in all this? One thing we see is a supreme trust of God. In the face of persecution, in the face of stones, in the face of man who doesn't approve of them, Stephen trusts God, just as Jesus trusted his Father. He knows his God. He knows his Savior. He knows where he's going. He knows that the stones won't get the final word. And he's ready. Hey, Aaron, could you kick up the heat maybe a one or two? It, I see people being cold, I think. So, thanks. If anybody disagrees, let Aaron know. <laughs> um, so, that, thanks, buddy. Uh, the second one... He prays, receive me. The second thing he does is he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's verse 60. He even says, falling to his knees, he cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against me. Again, he's echoing Jesus. Jesus in Luke 23, 34 says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So Jesus at his crucifixion prayed, God, would you forgive them even as they're killing me? Stephen even as he's being hit with stones from his murderer, says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Forgive them. Extend mercy to them. Jesus on his sermon in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 44 said, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Certainly Stephen's thinking of that. Stephen, love your enemies who are hitting you with stones who don't, who are stubborn of heart and have not listened to God yet love them, pray for their forgiveness instead. So again, if you just imagine this moment, like how can Stephen actually do this? Like in in that moment, like how can you actually pray, Lord, forgive them as they hit you with stones? I think one is he saw Jesus or he he knew that Jesus did it. Secondly, Stephen is, is apparently a firm believer in God's abundant, free grace. Right? Stephen knows that he's accepted in God's sight, not because of his own merits, but it's because of God's willingness to forgive him because of Jesus. And so as he looks at those who, are, who have not merited God's forgiveness, he can pray, God, would you extend mercy to them as well, just as you've extended mercy to me. Secondly, Stephen is not focused upon his own vengeance. Now, I don't know if there's really a a practical way that he could have sought his own vengeance in that moment, right? But he doesn't seem to be concerned with his own vengeance. He's content to die, but he's praying for their salvation. Thirdly, Stephen knows he's loved by God. He knows he's going to be accepted by God as he's looking into heaven even in this moment. And he knows that God loved him who was God's enemy. He was unworthy of God's love because he was an enemy of God. And so in the same way, he can extend that love to his enemies as well. So so Stephen, we could say in in many ways here is trusting God. He's showing faith in God because he's looking to God to receive him, not to man. 
And we could also say that Stephen is, is in a very literal way following in Jesus's footsteps because Jesus died in a very similar way at the hands of a mob, people insulting him. He was in the right, but then he's praying for their benefit. And so I think this just begs us to ask, could we, could you die like Stephen dies here? I mean, like really, like if you were in that situation, could you die in a way like that, that looks to God, that trusts God supremely so that you could pray for the forgiveness of your and God's enemies, even as you are assured of God's acceptance of you? And I think that makes us ask another question. Can, can you live like this? Because if we, if we can't live like that, we're probably not going to die in that similar way. And I don't, I don't necessarily think we'll be stoned at our death likely, but can we live like this? Can we live in a way that is so confident of God's acceptance of me because of Jesus that I'm looking to him, not to man? I'm seeing his glory. I'm focused on him and his glory. And, and can I live in a way that prays for forgiveness and for God's mercy for those who are yet deserving of it, for those who are undeserving of it. Can we pray like that? So final section here, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, what happens next? What happens after Stephen's death? So Stephen's death is the first recorded martyrdom in Acts. Uh, It's the first death at the hands of, of persecutors. And it really serves as a spark in the story. It sparks many things here. Um, and so I want to think first, what happens next with them, with the persecutors, with those who are against God's people here? Well, f- well they are emboldened in their persecution. The, the, their persecution ramps up in response to this. This is a catalyst for them that leads to a great persecution, as we read in verse 1. So, so in Jerusalem, a great persecution breaks out. And that persecution leads to the scattering of God's people throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So so they're persecuted there, they're sent out, they're scattered. And then we're also introduced in this section to a man named Saul. Now Saul will go on to become Paul, but at this point, he saw kind of public enemy number one of the church, chief persecutor of the church, and we're introduced to him as approving of Stephen's execution. And then in verse 3, as ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. That's what's going on in response to Stephen's death. Even as we look forward to chapter 9, verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, went to the high priest and asked for letters as he's going to extend that persecution into Damascus. So, the, the challenge, the persecution is intensified here as a result of Stephen's death. And I think we can pause and just think, again, what would it be like to be a Christian in that moment? Things have been going, you know, you've had some rough spots, but like there hasn't been this level of persecution at this point. But now Stephen, one of the men that you just commissioned, has been brutally murdered. And then an, an intensified persecution breaks out in the city some of those who were there who were kind of leading the way have been sent, they've been scattered elsewhere, so they're not there anymore. People are in prison. You probably know people who are in prison, in your family or neighbors or friends. Like that, that's what's going on. And, and I think if we're in that moment, it's likely that, that a Christian would be asking, 
where's God? Like, what is going on in this moment? This isn't how I thought it was going to go. Like, I kind of expected something different. Like, where is God? What's he going to do? How is he going to intervene in this moment? Which is not necessarily a different reaction than you would have had when Jesus died, if you were a follower of him then. We thought Jesus was the one, and then he dies. God, where are you? What are you doing? How are you going to redeem this thing? But let's think also of what happens next with us, with the Christians, with those who are following God. Well, as I said, they, they get scattered. But scattering isn't necessarily a bad thing. If you go back to Acts 1.8, Jesus is commissioned before he ascends into heaven. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And that's where we've been up to this point in Acts. They've been witnesses in Jerusalem. But then he goes on to say, you'll be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus' commission is for them to be witnesses here and everywhere. Where are they scattered? In chapter 8, verse 1, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, the very places that Jesus said, you're going to go be my witnesses, a persecution happens and Jesus says, I'm going to use this to expand my kingdom in these places. This is where I wanted you to go. This is part of what I'm doing. So go, preach. And if you look at verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So they weren't just scattered and kind of, you know, running around with their tails between their legs. They were scattered going about preaching God's word, proclaiming the kingdom. What else happens is uh, really the the rest of chapter 8. Luke tells us about Philip going to Samaria and the gospel taking root and growing in Samaria. And then in the, the last half of chapter 8, Philip is introduced to the Ethiopian eunuch. And so the gospel goes to Ethiopia. So what happens because of persecution? The gospel goes to Samaria and Ethiopia. That's amazing. But we also see about the believers here in, in chapter 8, verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. So it's, it's not just a party they're they're lamenting as well one of their brothers was was just killed so they are lamenting Stephen's death even as they look to God with trust they are lamenting what has happened and all the while they're suffering in general and and as it says in verse 3 many of them are being committed to prison so that's what's going on and so what is God doing <laughs> Again, come back, come back to that question. Where, where is God? How is God going to intervene? How is God going to use this and redeem this for his purposes? Well, part of it, as I've mentioned, is Samaria and Ethiopia, right? We, we see in, in Judea, we see the gospel going to these places where it wasn't before. But there's another thing we should see. And that's if you think about this whole scene, there's only two people who are named by name, Stephen and Saul. Saul's the only other person whose name we have here. He's the only persecutor whose name we have. Why? Well, Saul will go on to become Paul. He'll go on to become, um, I'm really, he's the preacher to Gentile and Jew, but God commissions him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He'll go on to write 13 of the letters of the New Testament. He'll go on to be one of the um, like pillars within the church. He's one of the chief means that God uses to build his church. But right now, he's Saul. He's persecutor of the church. 
And once you think about what Stephen prays in verse 60, and St. Augustine, um, 4th century church father, says this, the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. The church owes the fact that we have Paul to the prayer of Stephen as he dies. And, and, And what he's getting at Again, if you look back at what Stephen prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Could could Stephen have known how over the top God would answer that prayer? Could Stephen have known that Saul was there and how abundantly God was going to use Saul in the work of the kingdom? I I don't think that there's any way he could have imagined that. But he trusts God and he prays, God, forgive these people. And God, in his grace, chooses to forgive Saul. He meets him on the road to Damascus. He confronts him, causes him to repent, and then he uses him to build his church and his kingdom. God is so over-the-top abundant and gracious in answering this prayer. And so I want to ask you, as you think about this, I want to ask you, how does this challenge you? Because it, it challenges me. It challenges me because I think if we're honest, there are people, whether they're personal people, you know, people we know personally in life that just seem too far gone or too far out of the reach of the Lord's hand. That they're, they're too much against the Lord, right? That's, that's who Saul is in this picture, right? He, he is, and it's hard to imagine someone who's more against the Lord than Saul is here. He's, he's persecuting the church. In chapter 9, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He's persecuting Jesus. But Stephen prays, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And God answers that prayer graciously. And so as you think about people that you know, family, friends, people you've known for a long time, or maybe people you don't know, but you're just aware of who they are, and they're, they're kind of a, an enemy of the church, let this text challenge you to pray for them. Let this text challenge you to pray that God would be so merciful and sovereign that he would call them to himself, that he would change what doesn't seem can be changed, and that he would redeem their hard and uncircumcised heart. Let it challenge you. But I also want to ask you, how does this encourage your prayers? How does this encourage you to be bold and to be persistent in those same prayers. Right? This is an incredibly bold prayer that Stephen prays. Like, Lord, don't hold this sin against these people who hate you and who hate me and who are murdering me as a follower of you. Like, forgive them, God. Like, that is incredibly bold. But would it encourage us to, again, pray for those same people who seem enemies of God, who are enemies of God, who seem that there's never going to come a day when they can repent. But trust that God is more powerful than that. Trust that God is sovereign over them. Trust that God can confront them and save and soften their uncircumcised heart. So be challenged and be encouraged in your prayers. Again, you can can go back to Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross prayed the same thing Stephen prays. Lord, receive me and Lord, forgive them. And it's because of Jesus' death on the cross that we know 
that if God can save a sinner like me, he can save a sinner like that person that I'm thinking of. So pray with me. Father, we give you great thanks, um, both for your word and for your work. Father, we thank you that you expanded the work of your church. You, You expanded the proclamation of your word through persecution and challenge. Father, would you help us um, to pray with boldness, to pray for mercy? And Father, we pray even now, uh, just thinking of, of people we know who are against you. God, we pray that you would overcome their sin, and you would put their sin upon your son Jesus, and that you would forgive them in your mercy. Lord, be at work among your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.